you have your Bibles, if you can open with me to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and as you're turning to today's passage, I want to quickly preach a mini-sermon to us, kind of a sermon before a sermon, if you will, um, and we think about this Christmas season and every Christmas season, and I know sometimes we put a whole lot of emphasis on a season, and we walk through a season, and we, we think as we walk through the season, well, I'm not filled with joy, um, I can't put aside kind of what's happening in the world. I can't put aside what's happening in my own life. And let me just say this. This season does not defeat cancer. This season does not banish loneliness. This season can't bring back a loved one who we've, we've lost. This season doesn't dispel darkness or disease, nor does it automatically fix the brokenness in our lives or around us. In fact, we get through this season and sometimes we're totally left disappointed and despondent. Yet let me say this. Don't blame yourself. This season is not your Savior. Jesus is. He is. And we cannot and we must not look to a season to do for us what only Jesus can. So be careful. Be careful this, this Christmas season don't look to a season to do for you what only Jesus can. Because this season can't. But Jesus can. And Christmas is far more than just a celebration of a season. It's far more than just celebrating the birth of a, a great man's birth. God himself and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, entered into our space, into our frail humanity, surrounded by our sin, and he came to rescue us. He came. He became one of us. God, in a sense, sent God. The Father gave his own son for us, for our salvation, and we celebrate that. We celebrate that this season and every season. And we are two weeks into a new Christmas uh, series that we are calling He Is, where we're walking through the events of Luke 1 and Luke 2 in order to get a glimpse of the revealed identity of Jesus. And sometimes it's helpful to kind of start back at the beginning, to start with the simplest questions. Who was this child Jesus? Who is the one who came to earth as an infant? And last week we saw that he is the promised, uh, fulfilled, he is the promised one. And this morning we're going to see that he is the eternal one. He is the one who is eternal. You know, have you ever spent time pondering where God came from? And I would say if you haven't, don't. <laughs> don't. Because after you've gone back as far as your mind will allow you to go, you're still no closer to him than when you first started. Ultimately, there is no beginning with him. There is no end with him. The fact is that God never did arrive. He has always been. And God the Son would become a child in time through, the, through his birth, but He's also eternal God. He never had a beginning, never an end. And a word comes to mind when we think about the uniqueness of this Savior um, that we are celebrating this season, and that word is matchless. He's the matchless one. He is incomparable. He's unrivaled. He has no equal as a revealer, as a creator, sustainer, and redeemer of this world. He's the matchless one. And as we look through the lens of Jesus, looking at who he is, we get a fresh perspective of the baby in a manger. 
And let me just kind of recap before we jump into today's passage where we are. So Luke 1 begins by introducing us to this couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were both of a priestly tribe. So both of them were of the priestly tribe. Zechariah was a priest. He was chosen by Lot to go into the temple, um, not the Holy of Holies, but the um, inner court of the temple, and to burn incense as a picture of prayer. As he goes in, he's praying for his nation, and probably he's praying for himself and for his wife. For the Bible tells us that he was married to Elizabeth. They were they walked humbly before God. They walked righteously before God, but they were barren. They didn't have any children. They were advanced in age. Many scholars believe they were in their 60s. And so he's praying, and an angel appears before him, something that doesn't happen every day. And the angel begins to talk to him, saying, you are going to have a son. You're going to call his name John. And Zechariah began to think about all the impossibilities in his mind. And so a stupid thing came out of his mouth where he said, well, I kind of need a sign. As if an angel from God wasn't enough. In that moment, he said, I need a sign. And of course, Gabriel said, okay, here's your sign. Um, you're going to be speechless. You're going to be mute until this son is born. So Zechariah comes out. He is mute. People are trying to talk to him. They knew something had happened. The Bible tells us that uh, Elizabeth gets pregnant and... They were rejoicing together, but yet hiding kind of the, the news in a sense. As we saw last week, Gabriel comes to Mary, telling her what's going to happen to her. And then Mary goes to Elizabeth. And when Mary goes to Elizabeth, something amazing happens. When Mary comes to her, the baby inside of Elizabeth, John the Baptist, leaps inside of her womb for joy. Think about this. If this doesn't put an end to any thought about uh, pro-life, pro the first ever to praise the Savior was a baby inside the womb. Just think about that. The first to ever praise the Savior was a baby inside the womb. For me, that settles it. That settles it all. But So what we know is that, so that said, the baby rejoices and then a son is born. So that kind of picks us up to where we are in today's text. So we're going to look at Luke 1, beginning in verse 67 all the way to verse 79. I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able as we honor God's word today. And it says this, beginning at verse 67, And his father, meaning John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways." to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for this, your word. It is living. It's powerful. Lord, just speak today through it by your spirit. Show us 
you, Jesus, the eternal one, and what that means for us. Even some 2,000 years removed, what that means for us today. Lord, fill our hearts with wonder. Fill our hearts with praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, and you may be seated. So the picture here is Elizabeth gives birth to a son on the eighth day when a Jewish couple would have a baby son um, circumcised and they would name their child. Elizabeth names the baby John, meaning grace by God, because that's what the angel told Zechariah to name the child. The crowd, though, was confused by this meaning they thought they would name the son Zachariah Jr. because that's just kind of what needed to happen. Zachariah um, asked for, he, he kind of does his little charades and asks for a tablet or something to write on, and he writes, his name is John. As soon as he does that, his mouth is opened. And the thought is he picks up his son and he begins to just give absolute praise to God. In one of the most beautiful ways. And, and here's a quick thought when you think about that. You think about Mary. When Mary is pressed against Elizabeth, she begins to praise God. We see in Luke 1. The same thing here. Zechariah is praising God. And think of it this way. When you bump someone who's carrying a bucket filled with something, and you bump them pretty good, what's going to happen? Now, what we know that probably something's going to spill from that bucket. And what's going to come out of the bucket? Well, whatever's in the bucket. I mean, if I'm standing on stage this morning holding a, a huge bucket filled with water, and Brother Steve comes up and bumps me as hard as he can, water's going to spill out of um, that bucket. It's going to spill on the floor, but it, it's just water, so we're okay. Now, if I'm holding a bucket filled with ink today, and Brother Steve does the same thing, um, all of a sudden this whole stage is going to be filled with ink, and some of you are going to lose your minds because we just ruined the carpet. And it's going to be a very upsetting thing. But here's the deal. Think about this. What comes out of you when someone bumps you? What comes out of you when circumstances hit you? And here's the answer. Whatever's inside of you. Whatever's inside of you is going to come out of you. If somebody bumps into you and a cuss word comes out, that's because that was inside of you. Jesus put it this way. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever is in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. If blessings come out, that's because blessings are inside of you. If cursing comes out, that's because cursing is inside of you. But when you bump someone, whatever's really in them is going to come out. Whatever's inside, and in a sense, Zechariah, he is bumped by an amazing encounter with Gabriel and an amazing gift of God. And what comes out of him is praise. And what comes out of us? What comes out of us when we experience the grace of God, when we experience the gifts of God? Oh, to God that it's praise. Oh, to God that we are praising Him. And surprisingly, the song that we just heard, Zachariah singing, most of it is taken up not with his own son, but with the salvation that the Messiah would bring. So he spends time focusing on the Savior, the promised one, the prepared one, the eternal one which is the three places we're going to go today. So let's begin with number one. First of all, he is the promised one. So Jesus is the promised one. Look back at verse 68, and it says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. 
Now, it would be impossible to count all the names of Jesus all throughout the Bible, but here is one that we can easily miss. Jesus is called here the horn of salvation. And it's not speaking of Jesus in a sense that he's a musical instrument. So um, Brother Wendell's not over here playing Jesus, the horn of salvation. That is not the, the picture here. The picture is the deadly weapon of a wild animal. So when large animals go to battle, they go to battle using their horns. And they conquer, they kill with their horns. So the horn in this time became a symbol of strength and power and victory. And it, so Jesus here is described as the horn of salvation. He is the one who has all power, who has all strength, and who always wins. He will always win. He will always conquer. And this is the only place in the, all in the New Testament that Jesus is referred to as the horn of salvation. But then Zechariah continues, In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies. Last week, we looked at the implications of the promise of Christ and what those implications are. Today, we're going to look at the more practical picture, but maybe you've endured one of those awkward moments when someone showed up at your house unannounced. You were glad to see them, but you were probably kind of mad because you wish they had given you a little heads up that they were coming. It's like, I'm glad to see you, but you have a phone. I have a phone. You could have called. It had been a nice little gesture. Many of us don't like be, being surprised by someone showing up unannounced unless they're super important to us. Now, if they're super important to us, they can come whenever they want to. But most of us regular people, if you show up at our house unannounced, it's like, well, thank you for coming, but you can leave now. Maybe that's kind of our, our thought. Well, here's the point. Our Savior didn't show up to earth unannounced. A whole company of of prophets gave myriad of prophecies that not only pointed to the certainty of his coming, but also kind of made specific promises about his coming. The prophet Micah, you know, I had to include him, prophesied that Jesus would come from Bethlehem. In Micah 5 2, he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Micah said, the eternal one, we're going to get to that in a second, the eternal one is coming from Bethlehem. Now Isaiah prophesied something even more specific and more unthinkable in Isaiah 7:14. We saw it last week. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You call his name Emmanuel. Genesis 22:18 tells that Jesus would be born of a descendant of Abraham. It would be the fulfillment of God's promises. As God promised Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, guess what? Abraham wasn't a blessing to all the nations. Israel wasn't a blessing to all the nations. But Jesus is. He is. Then the Old Testament even foretells that Jesus would be called out of Egypt. Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. These are just a few of the hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. And these prophecies remind us that the coming of Jesus was and is a result of the grace of our God, and every part of it was planned. Every part of Christ's coming was planned. God was unwilling to leave us in our sin. He was unwilling to let sin win. He wouldn't let the story that he wrote. So this is his story. 
He wouldn't let that story end in dark failure and divine judgment without any other alternatives. So part of the story was a promise of a son, a savior. The prophets spoke of one who would come from heaven. They spoke of one who'd be born of a virgin, a son of Abraham, of David's royal city who would sit on the throne of his father, David, which is what Zechariah mentions. He mentions David and he mentions Abraham here. They spoke of one who would redeem the nations and the people, restore Israel to former glory. The prophet spoke of one who is and would be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And I'm certain there were times where those who hung to their faith in God in the midst of these days were tempted to believe that the prophets were wrong. Perhaps it was not to be. Perhaps it was all just wishful thinking or mythological hopes. So many years had come and gone. Sons had buried their fathers. Their sons had buried them. And their sons had buried them. And still no word from heaven. Yet finally, praise be to God. God has now done what he promised to do. And this truth leads me to a Crucial conclusion concerning Jesus. He must be great, and he must be the greatest if it took 4,000 years to prepare for him to come. It took 4,000 years to prepare for him to come. He must be great, and he must be the greatest. This is no small event. His coming is the biggest event in history. Everything before him looked forward to him. Everything after him looks backwards. He is the centerpiece of all of history. He is it. And don't miss it. Even though Jesus was several months from making his earthly entrance, Zachariah is so certain that this is going to happen that he speaks of it as if it already has. He speaks of it as if it's already happened. He says he has visited. He has redeemed his people. And please hear this. Zechariah rejoiced in a Savior because he was waiting for him. He was waiting for him. He was waiting for the Savior. Let me frame it all this way. If someone would have walked up to me a month ago and given me some migraine medicine, I would have felt very little appreciation for it. I hadn't had a migraine in a while, so I would have probably thanked the person, yet I wouldn't have thought much about the medicine. Yet two weeks ago, migraines made their way back into my life after a long period, and I would have gladly, in that moment when they came, received that medicine. And I would have done it um, gratefully. Now, if you offer me a ride to the emergency room, I'm going to think it's strange unless... I get excited today and somehow fall off the stage and break my leg, or you tell me one of my loved ones in the emergency room, then I'm going to love you for the offer. And the same way, think about it. If I'm driving home and all of a sudden there's a police barricade blocking my way, I'm going to feel annoyed. Just let me get home. But if I hear that there's an active shooter a mile down the road shooting at cars that are passing by, I'm going to feel pretty grateful. I'm going to feel pretty grateful that the cops got there in time. And so it is with all of life. We don't appreciate gifts that meet no needs. 
We don't appreciate gifts that satisfy no desires in our lives. We don't value or we don't love and offer for help until we get to a place where we need help. We don't value someone offering something if we feel like we don't need it. Therefore, vast numbers of people look to Jesus and the stories of Christmas as if it's unneeded medication being offered to us or a ride to the emergency room or a police barricade. And they look at it that way because they don't know what they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. For them, the horn of salvation is not a need in their life. But one day, one day, they're going to come to understand that Jesus was all they ever needed. But for many, it'll be too late. For many, it'll be too late for them on that day. Yet Jesus is the promised one sent to us, sent for us. So he's the promised one. But secondly, he is the prepared one. He's the prepared one. And when I say prepared one, I mean that someone prepared the way for Jesus. And that someone's name is John. We call him John the Baptist. Now, the reason we call him John the Baptist, he wasn't the first Southern Baptist person there is. That is not the picture. So he wasn't Baptist by denomination. He was basically, you could refer to him not as John the Baptist, but John the Baptizer or John the Dunker or John the Immerser. Basically, anybody he came across that said, yeah, I believe, he would just grab and just dunk them underwater. And that's just kind of what he, he did. And to this child, Zechariah says this in verses 76 and 78, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Now, if John the Baptist were a member of your family, he would be the crazy, loud uncle that you would invite to Christmas, but all the while you would hope that he would decline your offer. It's kind of the the way John is. John was different. He was a strange dude. He wore camel skin. He ate locust and honey. His message was a message, kind of a radical message, where he called people vipers and said, repent, or who told you you needed to repent? He was kind of out there. But if you got to know John, you'd quickly realize some important things about him, that he was Authentic. He wasn't radical for radicals' sake. John lived differently than everyone else because unlike everyone else, John's mission was made clear from even before his birth. He would prepare the way for Jesus. So John devoted his life to that. He devoted his whole life to Jesus. All of his life. Prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Malachi, both pointed to John's coming for 400 years so as soon as malachi the book of malachi ends 400 years went by where we do not have any prophetic message from god 400 years of what's called silence and then god broke that silence with a message from an angel to zachariah and then to mary but ultimately broke that silence through the mouth of a prophet named john he would prepare the way and in fact the last book of the old testament malachi And the last book of the Old Testament, the last verses of the Old Testament end this way. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. Many years before that, 750 years before these events, Isaiah would write these words in Isaiah 43. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of 
the Lord. He was one who would prepare the way. Jesus would later make this statement about John that is absolutely extraordinary. And I say that because of this. Let me ask you as a way of, of preface. Other than Jesus Christ, who would you say is the greatest person who has ever lived in the history of the world? Now, from our Western view, if we took a poll, the greatest person, some would say, at the top of the list would probably be Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, um, Martin Luther King Jr. Now, Muhammad Ali, already voted for Muhammad Ali as the greatest. But here's what I'm saying. I don't think John the Baptist would make our top 10 list, or I don't think he would even make our top 1,000 list. I don't think we would think much about him at all. Yet Jesus says in Luke 7, 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So if Jesus got to vote, and I'm just crazy enough to say I think his vote should count more than ours, Jesus said, John is the greatest. Jesus is basically saying, of all people born in all of world's history, other than me, as the God-man, there is no mere man or woman who is equal to John. What a staggering statement. The greatest man in the history of the world. But hear this. John wasn't great or considered great by Jesus because of his person. He was considered great by Jesus because of his purpose. John was filled with the Holy Spirit. In order to prepare the way for Jesus, everything that John did pointed to Jesus. And that's what made him great. Everything in his life pointed to Jesus. Think about our own lives. How much of your life and my life points people to Jesus? How much of, of what we do points people to who Jesus is and what he has done for us? Now back to this moment. How thrilling for Zachariah to gaze into the cradle where his child lay. His mouth is now open. Here is the one laying before him who would lead the nation back to God, prepare the way for the Lord. We can just see Zechariah bending down, grabbing his son, swooping him up, holding him, and beginning to praise God. He's praising God for the Savior, and then he begins to focus on the son, and he calls John this, the prophet of the Most High. Now, that probably doesn't hit us at all until we realize both of John's parents were in the priestly line, meaning John should have been a priest. That's kind of what his parents did, so that's what you do. But that wasn't the calling of God for John. John's calling from God wasn't to be a priest, but to be a prophet. The picture is Israel had too many priests already. What they needed was a prophet who would point the way to the great high priest, the one who would lay down his life for us. And before we get to the last truth, let me just say this, because I, I was dwelling on this last night. I thought this was very, very important. When we think about all that Zechariah said, when we think about this declaration, Zechariah didn't know everything that was about to happen. He didn't know every single detail of what was going on. Yet, he praised God anyway. And let me just say this to us this morning. We don't have to know every detail that is coming in order to praise the one that does. Amen. We praise the one who does. He, he knows what's coming. He knows. So therefore, I don't have to know what's going to happen tomorrow because God does. And guess what? He'll hold me tomorrow. 
And his mercy will be waiting for me tomorrow. He'll still be enough for me tomorrow. I don't have to know what tomorrow holds in order to trust the one who holds my tomorrow. Oh, to God that we would praise him for that. And Zechariah knew. I don't know every detail, but I know that God keeps his promises. And God promised to save his people from their sins. So Jesus was the prepared one. And then lastly, Jesus is the eternal one. He is the eternal one. He's not just the one foretold by the prophets for almost 4,000 years. He is the eternal one. Think about it this way. Think of him this way. Before the world was formed, he was. Before the sun, the moon, the stars lit up the sky, he was. Before the first flower bloomed, he was. Before the first fruit grew on a tree, he was. Before the first wing of an eagle flapped or the first gill of a fish opened up, he was. Before the first golden sunset, before the first drop of water, before the first gust of wind, he was. Then let's get personal. Before he experienced breath in his little lungs, before he experienced light in his eyes, before he experienced sound in his ears, before he experienced smell in his nostrils and what smells those must have been, but before all of that, he was. He was. Several writers suggested that a helpful idea for how we can compare eternity to what we're living in is to imagine hundreds, maybe even thousands of pieces of white paper taped together. Then you take all of that paper and you place it on the side of a huge skyscraper. So kind of just imagine this huge white curtain sitting on this huge skyscraper and then take a pencil and with that pencil, go to the center of that piece of paper and then mark a line. And that line represents time, but don't miss it. It doesn't represent time of your life or my life. It represents all of time when centered around all of eternity. Now, that example begins to break down a little bit, but here's the deal. In the midst of that little line compared to everything else, I won't even ask you to find yourself on it. Because how do we find ourselves on that? But here is the deal. Here's the thing I think we need to, to understand above it all. Everything that we know has a beginning and has an end. In contrast to the one who has no beginning and no end. This is a reminder, I think, of who and what we're dealing with when we're dealing with an eternal Savior. Before there was a clock, before there was a calendar, before there was a watch or a date book or now an app for all of those things, there was Jesus. Before it all, before there was history, before history even existed, there was him. In fact, I love the beautiful statement that history is really his story. It's his story played out. But just listen, just listen to how John the Baptist describes Jesus in John 1. So John comes on the scene. Jesus' ministry is about to get going. And John sees Jesus. And in John 1, beginning at verse 29, it says this, The next day he, John, saw Jesus coming towards him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now don't miss it here. Because ever since God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, Abraham knew what was coming. Isaac didn't. And as they walked to the Mount Moriah, 
Isaac looked at his dad and said, Dad, we have everything that is needed for the sacrifice, but where is the lamb? And Abraham said, Son, God himself, or God will provide for himself, or as himself, the lamb. So the question of the Old Testament then became, where's the lamb? Where is the lamb? That was the question of the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? Where is the one that will be our sacrifice? Where is he? And in this moment, on this day, John sees him coming and says, Behold, look, don't miss the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then John continues, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. Hear this, because he was before me. Now John was born at least six months before Jesus, yet John says he was before me. The point being made that long before that first Christmas, the story of Jesus had already begun, not just in divine prophecies, but in a divine person. Christmas may be the opening of a climatic chapter of redemption, but it's not the beginning of Jesus. He's always Then, unlike every other human birth, yours and mine, Christmas is not the beginning. Christmas was the becoming. Christmas isn't the start of Jesus. It's the sending of Jesus. Jesus wasn't created at Christmas. He came at Christmas for us. Therefore, in light of who he is, what should our response to him be? Let me give you one more statement from, from John. From John the baptizer, John the Baptist, John the dunker, whatever you want to call him. In John 3, we're going to put it on the screen. Let me just kind of bring you up to speed of what's happening here. In John 3, John's disciples come to him and said, hang on a second, John. This guy that you baptized, you baptized him, and now he's getting a larger following than you are. What should we do about it? So they come to John and say, hey, man, John, I think we need to ramp up our marketing you know, we need to kind of go out and do a little bit more marketing. We need to, to do a, maybe a bigger event, see if we can draw more crowds, because that guy who came after you is drawing a bigger crowd than you. What should we do about it? And John looks at them and says, did I not tell you I'm not the one? Did I not tell you my job is to point the way to the one? And he's the one. And John, in the midst of what he's saying, says this. He must increase. I must decrease. How should we respond to the one who has come for us? How should we respond to the eternal one? The right response, brothers and sisters, is he must become greater. I must become less. As the eternal one, Jesus never disappoints. He never forsakes. He never leaves. He never dies. He is the one our hearts have always desired, whether we know it or not. Once we become his children, we are his children. Get this, forever. We're his forever. There'll be no goodbyes with him. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even death itself for the child of God only draws us closer to him. Meaning, why would we not want him to increase? Why would we not want him who is all of that to increase? 
Let me end by saying this. And I, I wasn't planning on saying this, but the Lord just kind of laid this upon my heart this morning. There are so many times, brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, we fight for us to increase. And when we fight for us to increase, we are miserable even as we serve God. Because we think somehow I'm not getting the credit I think I, should, I deserve. Listen, I appreciate everything that you have done and that you are doing, but you didn't die for me. You haven't died for me. He did. Therefore, he should get more praise than any of us. He should get more praise than all of us put together. In fact, it should be all about him and really not about us at all. But if we make it about us at all, we're going to get discontent. We're going to moan and groan. And we're going to think that people aren't recognizing me and honor me. And oh, that our prayer would be because he is who he is. May he increase. May he become greater. May I become less. Because I can't save anyone from their sins. But he can save everyone who calls upon his name from their sins. Oh, that he may increase even today among his people. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. We're going to call the musicians forward as we prepare to enter this time of invitation and consecration and pray and just ask that we would adore this one, the eternal one. And let's pray together. Father, we just rejoice in you, O oh God. We rejoice in your Savior, the one who was promised through the prophets. Hundreds of prophecies were fulfilled in his first coming. Oh, the beauty of that. He was the one that's way was prepared by John the Baptist. Oh, that we would still prepare his way. As we know he is coming again. But ultimately, Jesus, you are the eternal one. You are the one who has no beginning and no end. Your word tells us that it was impossible for death to hold you because you're the eternal one. Your word says that you died and yet you were alive forevermore. As you have always been, you will always be. And Lord, just help us, God, to, in light of who you are, help us to see ourselves clearly. And in seeing ourselves clearly, help us to say, as John did, may you become greater. May you become greater. God, may you become greater in our lives today. May you become greater in your church today. May you become greater in our circumstances. With all the things that are going on around us, God, with all the things that we can't, Lord, may you become greater because you can. Because you can. Lord, help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.